you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Coming up on Huddle and Flow. They weren't taking the knee because it was a moment. That's not that's not what athletes were doing. They were taking a knee because they were sick and tired of being treated like chattel and then seeing their communities treated that way too. All right, all right. We are coming up with a week 10 episode of the Huddle and Flow podcast. I'm Steve White with my guy Jim Trotter. We got our fellow Howard University brethren, Thomas Warren, on the ones and twos producing this. Jim, week 10, we've got some divisional races in the NFC West, AFC East, looking a lot more uncertain at the top than they did just two or three weeks ago. Hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. Don't forget the NFC East either. Man, see, it's a yeah. race. It's a race. Pushing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> pushing, pushing push that snowball uphill, man. <laughs> you, gotta, you know, for the NFC East, Jim, I, you know, I've done some math and I've tallied, and I think it's going to take six wins to win the division. Six wins is going to win that division. When you look at the you schedules know, like, of all the teams in there, that's about what it's going to, and this is where this tie for the Eagles is going to help them. You, you know what, though? What's going to happen, Steve? It's going to be so bad that it becomes good. It reminds me of that time when I was, was a beat writer for the Chargers, and they started out 0-11. And at about 0-6, 0-7, 0-8, everybody's talking about how bad they are and whatnot. And when they got to double digits, 0-10, everybody became interested. And it became the talk of national talk radio and everything else. And all of a sudden, the focus was there. So you watch. The NFC East. They may be striving for six wins to win that division, but it will be a race that everyone will be talking about. Mark my words. Dan- Daniel Jones, Andy Dalton, Alex Smith, and Carson Wentz slugging it out. You know, it's funny. No. You're talking about the NFC East. Our guest today, our special guest, 
Maya Wiley, a uh, a low, former lawyer, uh, uh, former political pundit on MSNBC, now mayoral candidate for the city of New York. She talks about being in the NFC East corridor and just how dreadful that has almost always been for her. <laughs> but, we, but we uplifted her, Steve, because we reminded her the Giants are in contention to win the division. So no, are. no matter how bad it is, it's still good for them. So I think she appreciated that, that we, that we could finish off on a high note. Man, we are putting like hot sauce on a TV dinner <laughs> when we're talking about the NFC East. All right, but Jim, before we get to Maya, let's, let's talk about the play of the weekend and the quote of the weekend. And that, of course, was Arizona's Hale Murray touchdown pass against the Buffalo Bills. Stephon Diggs comes down and makes this great catch with 30 seconds left. I think Buffalo wins. And here comes Arizona, who's been in five one-possession games this year. And Kyler Murray launches it. And D-Hop goes up over three Bills defenders. And, Jim, these are not busters. This is Jordan Boyer, Tredavious White, and Micah Hyde. These are three really good players. And pulls it down for the play of the year so far. Yeah, no question. You know, as I, I watched that in real time, and the first thing I thought of is that could Kyler get outside of contain? And when he made that little move to slip around the edge there, I was like, okay, he got around it, but now can he stop his momentum long enough to turn his shoulders and get the pass off downfield far enough? And I'll be darned if he didn't. And not only that, you know, he couldn't have asked for a better tra- trajectory for that ball and, you know, to come down to D-hop the way that it did. Everything about it, I would wager if they had to do that nine out of ten times, they couldn't. And this was that one time where it all just came together in that moment. And, man, it was it was, it was was incredible, you know. And the funny thing is you always, whenever you see a play like that and you always hold your breath for a minute and say, did he really catch it? Did he really catch it? I'm not sure. Did he hit the ground there? Because, you know, you lose it in that in that scrum of bodies there. And then when you saw the Cardinal teammate come in and start slapping it at Hop, that's when I knew he caught it, you know. So, hell of a play. And you're waiting for the OPI because there's almost always the push, you know, from the offensive player. And, but the but they never call it there. They never call it. They, they never call it, yeah. But, Jim, here's the best part about that was afterwards the quote from D-Hop. Where he talks about, yeah, you know, basketball, this is what they do for Duncan. But there was three of them, and it was just a great catch by I. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, we got to call him I-Hop now. We can't call him D-Hop. We got to call him I-Hop. Oh, man. I'll tell you what. He he earned as many – what do they call him? Uh, uh, not silver dollars, but IHOP has a name for for some of these pancakes. He earned it a lifetime worth. A lifetime supply of. Well, I tell you what, you know, for he rose above the fray, right? He was in he was in contention to make a heck of a play to win it all in a huge game. And so, kind of on that note, let's segue to our special guest. Maya Wiley, who hopes to rise above the fray, become the mayor of New York. Plus, Jim, she may be one of the few people to have better looking dreadlocks than (laughs) D-Hop. (laughs) 
All right, Jim, we are now joined by just a wonderful person, um, someone we both know, you know her well, Maya Wiley. We've seen her on MSNBC, we've seen her on Bill Maher, but now we're seeing on all of the campaign avenues as she is running for the mayor of New York, Maya Wiley. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Huddle and Flow podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you. Big fans here, Maya. So um, we've had some tremendous guests. Um, and one of the things I said when this thing started very early on with Steve, we said we wanted to get you on just because we're both big fans of your work um, and your fight for civil rights and social justice. So we're honored to have you here. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you for thank you for this podcast. I'm just honored to be on since y'all had Chuck D. So now I know I've, <laughs> I have a lot. Hey, don't don't come on here thinking you're riding his coattails now. Don't think you're coming in here. No, uh-huh. we're coming here because you bring the noise, just like Chuck. Yes, yes. And and, and and so, Maya, you know, we we've seen you do a lot of uh, legal work in New York. You're you're a great voice for legal work, especially when it comes to civil rights, um, police, bad police behavior, accountability. So, I guess you know, we want to start this off. Why all of a sudden? dive into the murky pool of running for political office as the mayor of New York City? Well, Steve, you know, I have to tell a personal story to answer this question uh, because, you know, I have two daughters, uh, 19 and 16, born and raised in New York City. We've been in the same house for 20 years. And my younger daughter, both of them have the same challenge, but my younger daughter really laid it out for me a couple of years ago, she said, mom, and she's a creative kid. You know, she was, she's like, she draws, she likes to write. She's thinking maybe graphic novels, but she's also a very realistic kid. She's a smart kid. She does her homework and she, she worked it out. She figured out that if she wanted to be an artist and she figured out how she could make money and sustain herself with a day job and maybe so she could have creative space to do her art at night and what she figured out is that she would need to basically have $600 a month rent. And she said, Mom, I can't stay in New York City. And that is the reality of what is happening in New York City, is that our folks are being displaced in a city that I love because, you know, it's a city with 800 languages spoken. It's a city where we have everyone from the descendants of North American slaves (laughs) to folks who emigrated from the West Indies, from Central and South America, from India and Asia. I mean, we have, we are a global city. We are a city that is so diverse and yet we are at risk of losing it. And we have seen a lot of folks being pushed out of communities, pushed out of, pushed out of a city that has like so many cities across the country become far too expensive. And, you know, just last year, a year before COVID hit, the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment in New York City hit $3,000 a month. The average. Mm -hmm. So we know we can't stay a city we all love with that story. And when I was a little kid growing up in D.C., yes, I have lived my entire life in the NFC East, I will say that. <laughs> that, that, is that I, but I watched, I watched my black neighborhood disappear. I watched my best friend 
just one day not be there anymore didn't even get to say goodbye because the landlord upped the rent and her mama who worked at the grocery store down the street couldn't afford to pay could barely afford to pay it before the landlord increased it and my entire neighborhood flipped and i came to new york because i thought that couldn't happen and now i'm having a conversation with my own children who are lucky in the scheme of things about whether they can stay. And there's a certain point at which you have to make a decision. Either you, you, you can keep talking about the change we need, or you can step up and try to make it. So I decided to step up. Maya, how do you make that change? How do you address these issues that you're talking about? You know, the one thing I know as a longtime racial justice advocate, as a child of civil rights organizers, that this is not a natural problem, meaning it is not a problem that just happened. It's a problem we constructed by making choices. And generally in this country, for generations, not just years, we have made choices that says we will we will fail to develop the public resources we need to ensure that folks can afford housing. We will fail to invest in public education in a way that ensures our children can get a great education. We will fail to protect workers so that we know that when they work, they will be able to work with dignity. And that most often, just like COVID, all COVID-19 did is blow the curtain back on a history of systemic racism. That's all it did. It, it exposed it. Is it much worse because of COVID? Yes, but it was predictable because the frontline workers, the essential workers who were keeping New York City running were people of color. <laughs> uh, were, were not only people of color, but were disproportionately people of color and all that comes with that. And now we simply have to make the choice that we are going to have a moral budget, a budget where we invest smartly, because we are going to have to be smart about it. We don't have unlimited resources, but smartly in solving the problems we created by making the wrong decisions or by ignoring problems. I wonder, as I listen to you talking about what you would like to do in New York City, um, we're in this climate now where cooperation and empathy simply is lacking. So I was curious your thoughts about that in terms of eliminating student loan debt. But then how do you get people now to work together again in this climate that, that the Trump administration has has truly um, I don't want to say they started it because I believe it was there before. But I think that they have have um, created an environment where it's much more accepted now for us to be polarized and divided. Yeah, I think that's so true. Look. You know, here we have to eliminate debt because we've created loan debt because we as a country stopped investing in the opportunity for higher education. The GI Bill, where we increased the number of people who have college education because we said, you know, if you served our country, if you were a veteran, we will give you money to get a college degree. And we got something like 200,000 people college degrees. Let me give you one more. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get a little wonky on you, but I can't help it. When we talk about the racial wealth gap, right? If you are black in this country, you're, you're on average, if you have some savings, your wealth, uh, and I'm talking about middle class, $25,000 in wealth, and you're probably scraping every last penny to help your kids go to college. And what we know about the statistics, if you're white, is you're far more likely to have nine times more wealth 
which means nine times more ability to find resources to get your child to college, to help pay for it. And you know what we find? We find that black parents are significantly more generous in trying to pay for their kids' education. And the problem is far too many black parents don't have the wealth. And, we, and we're seeing our kids ending up in for-profit colleges that by and large means that if you're black, you're in deeper debt. Yep. And less likely to be able to effectively use that degree. I want to go to another point that really played big in national politics. Um, and we saw a lot of athletes get behind um, police accountability, the conversation of defunding the police. And, and this is, again, people say this kind of worked against the Democrats in some ways, because when you hear defund the police, which has been a big outcry in New York politics locally, that people are like, whoa. Because my buddy in Brooklyn was like, yo, man, we, we need the police. This is still Brooklyn now. You might. You might get hemmed up, you know, and humble. And as someone, again, who has really fought police corruption for the majority of your adult life and you're campaigning and, and just in your everyday life, kind of convey the message so it hits with voters and maybe kind of, we know New York often, things that start in New York spread across, out across the country, how that can trickle, have a trickle effect across the nation. We have grown the size of the police force way beyond anything that maps to our needs around violent crime. And that has taken money away from our opportunity to create a mental health response, to make sure it's easier to get a job than a gun. We know that when you make job opportunities available for our young people, even if the illegal gun is in the community, they're not likely to pick it up and use it. So if we want to prevent gun violence, which we must, it's not about an either or. It's about right-sizing the police department to focus it on what it should be doing. And it should be tracking down how illegal guns are coming into our communities. It absolutely should. What it, does, what it should not do is take money out of our schools or away from mental health services we're not providing. And so what, what activists are calling for is to do put the public back in public safety. And that's about investment in people. Maya, we had Chuck D on last week, and one of the things he talked about is how men have gotten us into this, this situation that we're in in this country and really around the world for the most part. And we're seeing now so many women now go into politics and trying to make a difference, whether it's on the local level, you running for mayor, or whether it's in Congress where we're seeing a record number of women and I wonder what impact do you think that will have? And secondly, you know, for you, if you are elected, you would be the first woman mayor of New York. And what would that mean to you? Look, you know, women are stepping up because Chuck D is right. <laughs> of course, I'm always going to say Chuck D is right. <laughs> but, but, he, but he absolutely is because the reality is, uh, and you all made this point earlier when we were talking about canceling student debt. It's about empathy. It's about figuring out how to come together and solve problems, not argue about whether we have them. And women do, I think, approach these issues. And black women in particular are very much about getting the work done. And what it means to me is exactly what I saw you know, when I was on the subway the other night, and I, I posted this on, t on Twitter, but when black women 
you know, and this, uh, a sister who was sitting on the subway recognized me and said, Maya Wiley. And we talked the whole subway ride. We get off and, you know, there's another black woman and her and her young daughter who's probably five or six years old. And the woman I'm with starts yelling, she's running for mayor. And she looks at the little girl and she says, see, you can be mayor. And it's the way we all felt when Kamala Harris gave that acceptance speech to be the first black and Asian woman to be a vice president elect. It's like, see, and it doesn't mean the barriers aren't still in our way because they are. I don't want to pretend that because Kamala Harris is a vice president elect that that just solves our issues. But it is what calls us all to say, you know, enough, enough of lying, enough of ignoring science, enough of refusing to empathize, enough of failing to come together. I, I don't want to I don't want to get you in trouble here, Maya. But what is it about we men who can't get out of our own way, can't get past our own ego and can't put people first? No, no, it's not true of all men. Right. And that's important. Thank you, Chuck D. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Steve. I mean, it's not all men, and we should make that right. clear. I think it is the way masculinity plays out in our politics, right? Which it means one of us, somebody has to be more powerful and win. <laughs> and you know, that's good in sports. That's great in sports. I'm all for it in sports. It's when it comes to serving people that it doesn't work. But it's, it's the call to partnership and not to credit, because I, I think women don't need credit. We just need to get it done. And I think there are men who can and do partner in that. So that's why I said I don't want to make it, you know, it, just like there's some women who don't, you know, there's some women who don't. So it's not an absolute, but I think we do have to recognize that for women, for generations, we have been taught to serve. And we serve. And black women have been holding it down when it comes to service. And so black women are also saying, you know what? There are many ways for us to serve. And we're going to show how, just like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached, we know how to be drum majors. And drum majors doesn't mean you're always leading the line. Sometimes it means you know how to pull up the rear. And sometimes you recognize how much that's leadership. I, I, I love Preach. hearing that. When I, look at, when I look at women like, you know, uh, Muriel Bowser and Keisha Lance Bottoms and the squad and Congress and things like that. Okay, here we go. You talk about changing the tenor. One thing we see we saw in this recent general election also is not just the women running for leadership, but the power of the black women vote. That's all we that's all we heard. Black women and women of color are the ones who swung, especially the presidential election. What what about that vote and can you you know because you're going to be running you're running in 2021 for the so this is not a general election year so we do know the voter turnout tends to lag in non-presidential election years how can you get that vote to maintain and sustain its energy if not even ramp it up to the next level i want to say this momentum started well before this election and black women look stacy abrams getting black people registered to vote in georgia started years ago the black women who got Doug Jones elected in the Alabama Senate, that happened too, 96% of black women. And the truth is black women have always been doing it. So it's not new. It's not new. What is new is the recognition 
of the leadership of black women when it comes to our electoral politics. That's what's new. And what's going to happen here in New York in June, because our primary election is June 22nd in this city, so it's not that far out, is that black women who, and women in general, who are a huge percentage of our electorate in New York City, are going to come out in force. And it's going to be because our problems will not be solved in June. (laughs) Our problems will not be solved. They're too large for anyone to feel complacent and women in particular are not feeling complacent and we haven't been for a very long time and it ain't going to stop because this election is over but my here's talk me off the ledge here i need your help okay so Jim, i'm here for you it, I, I appreciate that we have seen in the past where let's just use economics for a minute where Republicans preach conservatism, fiscal conservatism, and yet they blow up the deficit. And then the Democrats have to come in and clean it up and they take a hit for it, you know, as they try and clean it up. My fear is that when we look at what this administration, looking at the at the national scope, what this administration has done is not going to be cleaned up in four years. I think there have been some things that have happened under this administration that are going to take a long time to reverse. How do we get through to those folks, particularly those who might be voting for the first time? And then they'll come back because I've heard this from folks say my vote doesn't matter. Look, nothing changes. So how do we do that? Jim, I'm here to save you. Save me, please. So let's start with the fact that this is why we had a record turnout in this election cycle, two thirds of voters, historic numbers for us in this country. And that's because people recognize the stakes were high. Uh, And the second thing I would say is, uh, you know, Americans are actually pretty uh, understanding if they see progress. It's not about change overnight, it's about progress. And the challenge we have is we are far too divided, right? I mean, 70 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. But the question is, what is core to that division, because oftentimes there's a lot we agree on when we can put, you know, we can when we can put our divisions aside, there's a lot we agree on. And what we need from cities and part of why I'm running for New York City is we need cities to innovate and show how the progress gets made, because it's it's at local level where people's lives are directly touched. And frankly, if cities and states and New York City and state has the ability to do this, get much more creative with what we have so people feel that investment and they feel the change and they can start seeing the next step. And that enables us to make the argument for the next set. Do you see this this social justice move, um, what we're seeing in terms of social justice, athletes speaking out, people in the streets marching and protesting, do you view this as a, as a moment or do you view it as a movement? Because as we said to Chuck D last week, when he said, when he rapped about fight the power, it was 31 years ago. And we're talking about the same things today that he was talking about 31 years ago. Or we can go back to my what I call my favorite album of all time, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. And the things that he sang about on that album are the same things we're talking about now, what, almost 50 years later? So... So do you view what's happening now as as a moment or a movement? 
what's happening now is most definitely a movement. And the movement started before Donald Trump won office. And we should be clear about that. This isn't a new movement. Uh, you know, Michael Bennett's a personal friend of mine. And, you know, Bennett and I had lots of conversations about this as Take the Knee was was going, is that um, they weren't taking the knee because it was a moment. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what athletes were doing. They were taking a knee because they were sick and tired of being treated like chattel and then seeing their communities treated that way too. So it is a movement because by definition, a, that is part of what makes movement. The conditions are such that people, people take action even when they don't know where it's going to take them because none of those athletes knew what was going to happen as a result of them taking a knee. And as we saw, there was huge backlash. Same thing is happening for people marching in the streets. No one knows where it's going to take them. People keep marching. You know, the thing I learned as a child of activists we just don't stop fighting. And movement moments are when it's like, okay, now, now it's when there's so much recognition about how much trouble we're in that we're got, that people who weren't engaged before become engaged. That's what movement is. That's what we saw this summer after George Floyd. We saw folks who were white go, I didn't really understand. And now I know it cannot be tolerated. And that, that call was, was, was both around police violence, absolutely, but it was also a recognition that it was transgender lives, that it was about poverty, that it was about a failure to invest in, in, in people, and, and, there, and a deepening of understanding. And that's why it's a movement, and it has only built. And the job of leadership, the job of folks who step into leadership positions is to figure out how to deliver on the demands of that movement. Yeah, and one reason why I think it's a movement that we're seeing in society is in 2016, when Colin Kaepernick first refused to stand for the national anthem in protest of police brutality, a lot of folks couldn't vote. You know, they were 14 or 15 right then, right? So now we're seeing people who are, who are first-time voters, maybe they're freshmen in college or 18 or 19, how much in campaign and, and being in the political belly of the whale, so to speak, is it addressing these young voters who are creating this movement, but also maybe solving the fears of middle-aged people who are seeing their New York or their city or whatever become too expensive or they, they can't afford the rent. They may be home. How much, I mean, how difficult is that? Because that is a significant bridge. You know, what wins citywide election in New York is coalition. What makes change in a country is coalition. It's coming together and recognizing we are stronger together than we are apart. And one of the things that I find, so yes, it's young people. And young people are very progressive. Young people are tired because they're, they're looking at the fact that it is significantly harder for them to make it than it was for their parents. And they're pushing older generations to understand that the transformation has to be bolder and bigger. Here's one of the things I don't think we're talking about enough, because I'm talking to everybody. And I believe we can only build that coalition by talking to everybody, not by sacrificing principle. We don't sacrifice our principles, but we find our ground to make progress on our principles. And I am hearing it from wealthy white New Yorkers who are like, we love this city too. Map out a path. We're looking for a path. We're looking for, we're looking to to see how we can engage differently. Now that's not every single person, but what it has shown is there is a real opportunity 
for this coalition that recognizes that the very survival of what we love about New York City, and everybody loves its diversity, is to finally step up for it and to be willing to figure out where the common ground is, even when we won't agree on everything, because we won't. But part, part of being a coalition is let's start with what we can agree on that's going to make real change for our folks in a way that holds on to what's precious about this city. And that is the fact that we are very, very different from one another and that we have it all and we have to keep it. You know, Maya, you're out there talking to voters, obviously, and I made this statement to Steve, and I want to get your take on it, whether or not you think I'm accurate or, or I'm off the deep end. And, and you can tell me I'm off the deep end. My wife tells me all the time. But um, I, I made the point that I said going forward as it relates to presidential elections and the Democratic Party, I don't think we will see another old white man elected president. I think that there's too much young energy. Um, women have, have are, are realizing their power as well. And I don't think they're going to stand for that. You think I'm right or I'm wrong? I think what you're right, that we are on an, on an undeniable path to demanding the recognition of all of the leadership opportunities that this country should be affording to real leaders and that we're not going to turn back from that path. Can I say that there'll never be an old white man again? No, I can't say that. And I think there's still, we have to acknowledge that there's still huge structural barriers, particularly to women of color, um, uh, but to people of color generally, to, to winning election. There are. And, and they're also still, we're still confronting massive, massive attacks on our right to vote. And we have to understand that and confront that. And we've seen it in this administration that lies about voter fraud. Uh, we've seen it in literally a decade of state level attack on the right of people of color to vote because, because of who people of color might vote for. And so we're not done fighting for the structural opportunity that our constitutional says we are supposed to have. One quick thing. Do you, do you believe in the Electoral College or do you think it should be either done away with or, or rewritten? And I ask that question because for so many elections now, um, uh-oh, what? What'd I do? No, no, no. We're no, Electoral we're College. We're live. No. We're just giving the <laughs> visual response to your question, Jim. <laughs> no, I just got this book that I'm starting to read about whether or not it's still relevant. And when you have elections where where um, the popular vote is so overwhelmingly in favor of one candidate, and yet that candidate can lose an election, is that a good thing for us? No. And the electoral okay. college got to go. <laughs> See, I, I just had to ask. You guys had me thinking I was crazy for a minute here. No, no, you're, Jim, we would never say you were crazy. It's okay. Well, okay, I can't speak for Steve. I will never say you're crazy. I, I would never crazy. say that. This is my brother from another mother. No, ma'am. <laughs> I appreciate you all. My, hey, by the way, for, the, for those of you who couldn't see, it's mine. I were giving the peace sign, the thumbs down. Because the Electoral College is, to me, one of the greatest signs of voter suppression and voter non-right. Let the people's voices speak. So what if the majority of people live in New York and California and New Jersey and, and Florida and Texas? Let the voices of the people speak. Well, and let's, let's be explicit. 
the majority of folks who are black in this country live in the southern United States. Right. Yes. Because of the Electoral College, because of the Electoral College, their votes, not in terms of the popular vote, their votes and their voice are diluted and discounted because they can't Mm -hmm. change the electoral vote in their state. Mm -hmm. Having Mm -hmm. nothing, so it just literally, it's a form of disenfranchisement that has its roots in slavery. So let's just call it what it is. It it, it it has its roots in slavery. And so we can either say, you want anyone in this country wants to say we're post-race, I'll tell you how we can get to post-race, but we ain't post-race yet. And unless we're starting to confront the things that don't serve our democracy anymore, and certainly serve to disenfranchise in 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 meaningful ways uh, people who, frankly, have been disenfranchised for generations. Then we are not actually post race. So, Maya, you you sat in the chair at MSNBC. You know what it's like to to be a journalist and and what this indus- industry is. And I wonder, what thoughts do you have on how we can do it better, based on your experience there? Well, first, let me say I had an a wonderful experience there. And it really became a family and uh, extremely intelligent, sharp, smart people, as are both of you. The challenge for journalists as a whole during the time of Trump was recognizing that neutral doesn't mean withholding the word lie, withholding the word fraud, with holding the word racist because it was factually accurate. It wasn't biased. And so many journalists were struggling with trying to not be biased that in effect, it meant in some instances, we're not calling a spade a spade. I always lift up a friend of mine, you know, Ben Smith, who's at the New York Times now, used to be a Politico, was a wonderful journalist. And he also used to be the editor, the news editor in chief for BuzzFeed. And he actually sent a a memo out to his staff during the the during the 2016 election. Uh, And it was about the directive to his staff on on their use of social media. And he said in his memo, you are allowed to refer to Donald Trump as a mendacious racist because it is factually accurate. And that that is what we needed more of. Okay, we've got to have some fun. We've got to wrap some things up, yeah. Maya. You okay. wait, we weren't having fun? I thought we were having we're, we're, fun. No, we're having fun. We're, no, no. We're, we're getting ready to have some fun at your expense. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, oh. Just because. Oh. Well, no. Okay, well, first off, I'm going to give you credit because you are a Giants fan, and we know they're not doing well. But, but, Maya, I watched them play. They've got a chance to go to the playoffs. Yeah, three and six, but they got a chance because the rest of the division is garbage. Yeah, I, I, I did. I not say earlier in this. Look, I, I have gone from D.C. to New York. I even lived in Philadelphia for a while, so I'm living the M- NFC East reality. <laughs> but we always gonna stand by our team. I, I'm curious, my, how does one in the New York area decide which team? they're going to support, especially if they're not a native. There's no good answer to that question. Cause look, I grew up in DC, so I've never been able to not root for my home team in DC. I have never been able to not do that. And you know, my, you know, my friends who grew up in New York, one of my best friends and I used to have, we, 
just used to go at it. But I, because look, it, all I can say is as long as it's not the Cowboys, I can be a, <laughs> as long as it's not the Cowboys. All right. This will be, this will be the toughest question you get all day from us and maybe anyone else, but you are a Knicks fan. How do you fix the, how do you make them relevant again? <laughs> I told you it'd be the hardest question you would have all day. I have not sufficient amount of education to answer that question. (laughs) I mean, I don't even know. Look, prayer. I can't go wrong if I stick with prayer. But but, Maya, look at this. So you talk about, you know, being being in that D.C. to New York corridor, right? Look at the NBA. She's had the options of the Knicks, the Nets, and the Wizards. Hmm. Yeah, you may want to stick with football, even though that's not looking too. Uh... And well, this is why you know our DC team. You know, because I grew up with the Bullets. Okay, I just want to say right. That. I did have partial season Knicks tickets in the '90s. I did. They were good then with Pat Riley. Those are great teams, and Larry Johnson, and Charles Freewell. Those guys. Those are great teams. And now I don't. <laughs> So, but you know what that you tells? Me? Wait, you know what? But but that confirms everything we know about you in terms of <laughs> you are so intelligent. That confirms your intelligence to me that you are no longer a partial season ticket holder for the Knicks. I can't. I just can't afford it. I had to do a cost benefit analysis. <laughs> there it is. There it is. There I'm it still is. praying. I'm still praying. I'm still praying. All right. Okay. okay so on. So on the way out here. Because Jim and I are both Howard University graduates, even All though you right. did not attend Howard, right? You grew up in D.C. I Could tried, you please let? I, I I tried to transfer to Howard, and my mother wouldn't let me. What? Oh no! You have to tell that story. She, you do not let her off the hook with just that, Jim. We need an explanation. Well, I, I I'll, I'll start by saying she really wanted me to go to Spelman. That's that's I'll start by okay, saying. Okay, that's fine. That's she all good. Trying to get me to go to Spelman. She wanted me to go to an all women's college. I was like, heck no, nah, which is not literally what I said, but you can fill in the rest. And then I was like, not doing it, no way. I get into Dartmouth, never visited it. She's like, no, you can't go to Dartmouth. You know, my 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 civil rights activist mother was like, it's the it's racist, it's patriarchal, you can't go there. And I was like, mom, the world is racist, the world is patriarchal. I can't choose a college that way. <laughs> like I have to go to the best one. She said, okay, it's your choice. It's your choice. So I get to Dartmouth and by October, I'm going, mom, this school is so racist. It is so <laughs> patriarchal. And you know, this is back in the day when we still had typewriters and I got the Howard transfer application. I had it in my typewriter. I was literally on the phone with my mother typing out like my Howard, I was like, I'm coming home. I'm coming to Howard. And she was like, no, you're not. She's like, oh, you no. So she threw it right back in my face. She said, you told oh. me that that's the world and you had to learn to manage that. So no, you're not. You belong right. there, Maya. Yeah. You belong but, there. But I will tell you that I figured out how to, and I am glad I stayed at Dartmouth because it did help me figure out how to navigate some stuff. And then 
I, but I also figured out how I could get out in three years. So I spent my senior year back in DC hanging out with my sororers at Delta Sigma Theta sorority at Howard and Sonia Lockett soror and I are going to be on a town hall together on Wednesday with Lorna Johnson. I know Sonia. Oh, I got to see that. I even, I even stepped with my sororers at Howard my senior year. So there you have it. I figured out a way to have my Howard experience. But Maya, this is why we adore you, truly. Um, we do. Your intelligence, um, your relatability, all of that, your empathy, your compassion for people. So um, I only wish I lived in New York for a day so that I could vote for you in uh, the mayoral election because you would have my vote hands down well thank you i will make sure you both get maya for mayor masks i'm waiting i I love those i I love those by the way i will we'll we'll get you some but i also have to say thank you to both of you because you embody exactly what is so valuable about our black men so thank you You know, Steve, um, Maya is one of my favorites. You know, it's just something about intelligence, you know. And the one thing I can say is that the guests we have had on this podcast, you walk away feeling like you learned something. And I feel that way with Maya. I felt that way, you know, the week before with Chuck D. Doesn't matter who it is, you learn something. And these are people who have an insight and view the world through a, a, a certain prism that's maybe a little bit different than, than the masses will. They, they make you think a little bit deeper on issues. And um, that's why I say, you know, as I tweeted um, on Monday, if you don't know her, you should know her because she's fabulous. And uh, like all of our guests have been. Yeah, I mean, she's so inspirational, Jim. You, you know, one thing we love about this this podcast is we've been able to kind of shine a light on, on some of our sisters and let them make us better with their intellect, with their perspective, you know, from Soledad O'Brien to Kimberly Martin to Lindsay Davis, you know, to Maya Wiley. And then here. And, and, like, and say this, Steve, surprise, but we got more coming from you, coming for you. Oh, from that yeah. standpoint. We're, yeah, we're, we're going to we're going to hold that off because we're, we're about to assemble a squad that we will take on any challengers once we all get together. So that's coming up very, very soon. Ooh, that's called the tease, right? That's all that's I can say. Is, ooh, it's going gonna, gonna to be good. It's oh, my good. goodness. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but, you know, the, the one thing. You know, because I've seen Maya Wiley when I used to, you know, I really watch her on Bill Maher and MSNBC and the intellect. And my wife and I would sit up like, man, you know, she's so smart. And she's she's making so many rational points. And even though this this podcast was kind of New York centric about her ideals to shape, you know, one of the greatest places in the world. These are global. I mean, these are things we can all take to, you know, the smallest communities in the world from Paducah, Kentucky to L.A. to wherever. All of these things can apply when it talks about being human. But I think the one thing. That you, you, you know, and you've listened to her and talked to her before. It's always like inspirational. Like she always wants you to feel better. And, you know, as, as we get out of here, I want you to see if there's a parallel. If there's an NFL story as we're heading into week 11, where you could say, man, this is, this is something where if you hang in there long enough and you don't give up and all of a sudden you decided to push through, there could be some certain glory where you can impact a lot of lives with your leadership or your example or whatever. Is there, is there a parallel you can draw? 
Uh, Steve, I'll, I'll take the low-hanging fruit here, and that's Alex Smith, Washington, the Washington quarterback. I mean, he made his first start since, since suffering that gruesome leg injury and nearly pulled off the, the, yeah. the fairy tale finish. I mean, he led them down to tie the score um, at the end of the fourth quarter, only to have Matthew Stafford and the Lions come back and kick their own field goal to win it. But, you know, when he talks about it, part of the reason that he came back instead of walking away um, after getting healthy was that he wanted to show his kids that anything is possible, you know, and that um, he wanted to be an inspiration for him from that standpoint and whatnot. So he's a low hanging fruit, but at the same time, simply because it's right in front of you doesn't mean that it's wrong. Sometimes the right answer is right in front of you. And I think that for me, Alex Smith is that guy, because no matter what happens at this point, um, this is a story you have to believe at some point is going to be on the big screen. Yeah, and, and Jim, there's there's a story with the Los Angeles Rams, and it's a it's a player who's making a name for himself. I'm just kind of amplifying what he's putting down on the field, and it's their starting cornerback Darius Williams, right? He plays opposite Jalen Ramsey, so teams are going to come after him because people don't really know who he is, right? So this is a guy who grew up in Jacksonville, went to a small school in Ohio to play football, comes home for family issues, tries to walk on at UAB. They canceled the program. Remember, they suspended the, the football program. Then within a year, I think, they reinstate the football program. He goes back. He earns a scholarship, signs as a UFA with the Ravens. They let him go. Rams pick him up as a practice squad guy, special team guy. Now he's got four picks. He just he just heisted two from Russell Wilson, and the second one he picked off late in the game in the Rams victory Sunday was as beautiful as it gets. And, you know, the thing when you talk to people about him is, not only is he this guy who's going to get better, but he's got receiver hands. And so, you know, as Rod Woodson used to say, the most dangerous DB is a DB with the ball in his hands. So this is a guy who's kind of just emerged under the guidance of cornerbacks coach Aubrey Pleasant, who's going to be a defensive coordinator in, in a year or two. He's one of these young stars who came with Sean McVay from Washington. And I, and I just, when I see a story like this guy, man, who could have said, you know what? It's just not working. I'm going to come home, but I'm going to keep pushing. It's like, I mean, just listening to Maya Wiley just kind of brought that, like, man, she's someone who could have had a great career in academia, you know, in the legal field, in in television. But she's she's laying it bare because, you know, it's, it's not going to be nice, you know, running a political race in New York. I mean, they're going to come after her, especially because she is a pretty popular person. Yeah, but the thing with her that, that always comes through whenever I hear her speak, is that it's not about her, that she's always thinking about others. And there's a selflessness there. And I'm, I'm sure that comes back from her parents who were activists themselves and fought for civil rights and social justice. And um, that's the thing, you know, like I said, during the pod, I had to get her to talk me off the ledge here because, <laughs> you know, it's hard at times to stay positive during when you see some of these things that are going on and you see people who are, are trying to oppress you simply because of the color of your skin. And, you know, folks like Maya Wiley make me step back and, and say, Ooh, take a deep breath here. There's a fight to be had. It's a long fight. It's a tough fight, but keep fighting. So I thank her for that. Excellent. Well, coming up on the next Hugland and flow gym, we're going to have on a receiver who arguably, and again, as great of a play as I hop made for Arizona to win that game Sunday. He's arguably had the biggest impact on his team of anyone who's changed teams thus far in the NFL. That is Stephon Diggs. 
from the Buffalo Bills. He'll be joining the Huddle and Flow podcast coming up a little bit later this week. And then next week, again, we're going to leave you hanging for a little bit. Woo! Jim? <laughs> All I know is Thomas better have his finger on that button because um, we'll give you one, one, a little bit more of this tease. These women, they tell it like it is. Let me stop because if I say any more, I'm going to give it away. But looking forward to it. To we'll, get to Stephon Diggs first. we'll get to Stefan Diggs first. Yes. And, then we'll, and then we'll let him have it. Oh, and here's the thing about Stefan you're going to love, Steve. We are definitely going to talk chicken wings because he once took me to a place in Minneapolis that had the best chicken wings maybe that I've ever had. And I'll let him tell you about it. So we will have that conversation. Jim, if you are telling people, if you are telling th- these folks out here that the best chicken wings are in Minneapolis and not, and, and not in like Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana, we're going to get a. Steve, I have not spent much time in Mississippi or Alabama. Um, have spent time in Louisiana. And I can tell you these chicken wings are all about that. And and I'll let him give you the name of the place. I don't want to give it away right now, but um, I will forever be indebted to Stefan for that because every time I go to Minneapolis, I make sure I make a stop here. Well, you better we better call up Kimberly Martin and tell her to listen. All right, for real. I'm, I'm going to make sure that if she and I are ever in Minneapolis together, we will be dining there. There you go. All right, Jim, bring us home. All right, people. So we appreciate you all listening. And please subscribe, leave comments, let us know what you're interested in, what you think, so that we can give you more of what you're funking for. What you're funking for. For Jim Trotter, for Thomas Warren, the HU Mob. You know what? Let's do a little Don Cornelius shout out to (laughs) Peace and Soul Podcast. We are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 